Interval Drinks is recorded remotely. Interval Drinks is sponsored by Darwin Escapes. Welcome to the Royal Shakespeare Company. This is Interval Drinks, a podcast in which Royal Shakespeare Company resident artists talk to people who have inspired them over drinks. I really recommend working at the ROC during a pandemic. <laughs> There's no audience that matches an audience of young people. I mean, I literally left drama school thinking this will never work out. I'm trying to flatter you, but I'm probably insulting you at the same time here. I don't want to be less soft. I, I want to be vulnerable. I want to wander around with all my emotions terrifyingly close to the surface and, and then monetize that. This is why I'm doing this. This is what I was born to do. And this is why I was born to do it. Catching up in the interval this week, it's RSC actor Greg Haste with Paul Chahidi. Hello and welcome to Interval Drinks, the Royal Shakespeare Company podcast in which we talk to artists who inspire us. My name's Greg Haste and I'm an actor in the current company playing the hard done by Dromeo of Ephesus in the Comedy of Errors. He's the twin that gets hit a lot. But you'll be pleased to know I'm far from aggrieved right now because of today's excitements. Now, as an actor, I often get asked who my favourite actor is. People are often particularly interested in actors they might not have heard of. And I remember maybe 12 or 15 years ago, I used to watch my guest today being all sorts of magnetic and amazing on stage. I, I used to think, oh, wow, this guy should be a superstar. And, well, I'm delighted to say that I obviously had a canny eye because since then he's gone on to wide, joyful and celebrated glories. <laughs> he's been Tony and Olivier nominated, does fantastic work on both stage and screen, and he is overwhelmingly well-loved as the endlessly patient vicar Francis Seaton and BAFTA-winning BBC comedy This Country. He played Defence Minister Nikolai Bulganin in Armando Iannucci's wonderfully black comedy The Death of Stalin, in which I have to say he performs perhaps the best flounce I have ever seen. He conquers the world of both tragedy and comedy, classical and modern. He's an all-round excellent person too. It's Paul Shahidi. Hello, Paul. <laughs> Hello, Greg. How lovely to join you. Uh, yeah, we're delighted. Are you enjoying this interval? I'm enjoying this interval very much, especially if, if I get an introduction like that. That's just fantastic. Uh, so, Paul, what are you drinking during the interval today? Oh, thanks for asking, Greg. I think I'll have a gin and tonic, please. And if you're getting any nibbles, could I have um, a packet of uh, salt and vinegar crisps? Yes, of course you can. <laughs> oh, lovely. And a, a slice of lime, please. Thank you. In the crisps or in the drink? Probably in the drink. Let's see how the evening goes. Uh, well, it's a delight to see you, particularly in lockdown. We don't get uh, we don't get to have much interval chat like this normally. Do no. you have any particular um, interval routines yourself when you're acting in a play, or even uh, when I when I was in a play? Um, well, nearly always I, I'd get I'd get backstage and get back to my dressing room, and call my wife. That would be the first thing I do, right. uh, and then what to um, tell her how well it's going, or to tell her how how well it's going, or how usually how awful I think I've been. Oh nonsense! <laughs> and she'll she'll be picking me up off the floor and I'll be going back in uh, for the second half. But yeah, I'll come backstage, give her a call, have a drink, either um, a cup of tea or a cold drink. I'd say uh, 
hot drinks for tragedy, cold drinks for comedy, and um, and then back on stage <laughs> for the second half. Let's see which drink we have by the end of this particular <laughs> podcast, depending on how well it goes. Now we actually met because of your wife. Yes, uh, that's isn't right. That right in a sort of roundabout way. Yeah, yeah. So so my wife Kate Coleman and her her very good friend Sophie Boyack founded a children's charity which is still going after twenty one years called Seen and Heard, um, and basically it's a mentoring charity that works with children in the Summerstown area of King's Cross very traditionally deprived area and it's a it's a project that kind of um gives kids uh self-confidence a sense of success by um seeing a project through from start to finish and in in this case it just happens to be drama and they write short plays which are then performed uh by professional actors and they have music composed by professionals and they're performed to the public uh, in a week-long run and the kids come and take a bow at the end of each performance in that week-long run uh, with their actors and they are utterly brilliant, life-changing and life-affirming things, both, I think, for the children because both they say so, their teachers say so and their parents say so and, um, and also the actors and everyone involved. So, yes, we were, you and I, volunteering as actors to be in the children's plays, weren't we? And uh, yeah, I think we, we were, met, that's right. met that way. I, I would, yeah, I would totally second that. It's about the most fun I've ever had. Yeah, and terrifying as well, because you have to do the what you have to write the words as they're written, and if they're written in a slightly jagged or ungrammatical way, or or, or, or kind of it doesn't immediately make sense because there are big leaps. You have to make sense of it and do it as written and make it work. And it rem- yeah. requires you to do all the things that to to shed all your tricks, basically, and be very honest with your acting. I think what people who haven't seen seen and heard, oh, I should say, also it's S C E N E. Very clever um, wordplay. Clever wordplay, seen and heard. Um, they might not appreciate that the kids write the plays as if they're normal plays. So we don't have any condescension to the fact that they are written for children, that you just might be playing uh, a shelf or a moon. In fact, one of my favourite scene and heard plays was you playing Ronnie Moon, the Welsh moon, yes. whose brother was a very meek gorilla called Rude Boy, who <laughs> had to, you had to right. get on a boat. You can't even drive the boat, I seem yes. to remember you saying at one point. Uh, but that had all the joys of a kind of Spike, Spike Milligan sensibility. Um but also, it was, it was very moving. There was sort of parental death at the end and all, all sorts of stuff. Well, they often, stuff. as you say, you, you, I think what sets it apart from many other um, pieces of drama involving children is it's performed in an absolutely adult and serious way, even if it's comedic. But, but you know, it is treated seriously yeah. by the actors and everyone involved. And <clears throat> you, the, what one of the briefs they're given is not that they can't be human, the characters. And that's partly mm. to avoid a kind of pale imitation of something naturalistic that they might see on television and to just be copying that. And so that they will be forced to use their imaginations more. Yeah. But um, yes, it's, um, it, it's just an extraordinary thing to be involved with, isn't it? So, so personally, have you had an interest in drama since you were maybe eight or nine like that? Or is, is that something... Well, it's funny. Well, I think how, I did, was st- how did you get into it? <clears throat> well, so I, I know a lot of actors who who started at that age, or even younger. I mean, but I don't think I had the confidence then. I think I was quite shy and introvert. And it was only when I was at secondary school, and I I had a brilliant teacher called Simon Elliott, who himself could have been a professional actor, and he had been at Cambridge with whole raft of people involved in the theatre but particularly Declan Donnellan who who founded Cheap by Jowl and as a result Declan Donnellan would come to our school with Cheap by Jowl on tour 
And our school had a theatre. We were very lucky. And he would perform there. And we would get to see these wonderful productions. But before that even, Simon Elliott would get us up on our feet, acting out bits of Shakespeare from the texts that we were having to be forced to study for what were then called O-levels, but now GCSEs. So I remember we were doing Henry IV Part One and Two, and it, when it's a forced march, it just takes the joy out of it, doesn't it? You know, yeah, you, you, yeah. you know, you're having to study it as a text, but once you get on your feet and actually have to perform it as a script, you, you see it's fun and it's, there's laughter in there and it, it just made sense to me and it, it opened up the meaning of those plays and the language, even at the age of 13 or 14. And I suddenly felt more relaxed about the plays. I mean, it's still hard work. I'm picking the language and everything. Don't get me wrong. But but it was a, a revelation, really. And it, it was through him that I gained the confidence to get up and perform. And then I got took part in plays at school. Um, and I did sort of reciting poems and things and that carried on into university and then I went to drama school and trained as an actor there were very few other things in my life that thrilled me or would fulfill me as much and I thought if I don't try acting as a career and the first step for me was going to drama school I will regret it for the rest of my life I just could feel it in my bones and I um I'm very glad I did fantastic so is typecasting a thing for you now, do you think? Because I've seen you play all sorts of different stuff and it's always very entertaining, but you seem to do quite a lot of different stuff. Is that something that you've deliberately chosen to do or is that...? Yeah, I, I mean, I, in some senses, I think I, I, I've always been an actor who's enjoyed transforming myself and becoming the character rather than the character becoming me and, oh, you know, yeah. me being the same in every role. And if you can do that well, gosh, that's a skill. So, you know, Harrison yeah. Ford, to some extent, is Harrison Ford in everything. But my goodness, I'd watch him in anything. But you have to have that something for that to work. <laughs> and I've, I've, I admire some of those actors, but I particularly admire actors who can transform themselves. And that's something I've enjoyed. And as a result, I've, I've often got offered widely different roles. And sometimes you have to also learn to say no to things if you feel like you're doing too much of the same. So it's partly been me kind of steering it in the only way one often can as an actor, which is by saying no, and a very important skill to have. And partly just through luck, you know, I've, I may have started in comic roles and then some director or some casting director somewhere will have gone, Ooh, you know, you've got a slightly sinister side to you, you know, mm. Paul. I think, I think you could, you could play a villain or, you know, it's so a very I'm scary play... widow twanky. Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, my head, that's my ideal role, obviously, Greg. <laughs> Why is she a widow? We wonder. What's <laughs> the know. subtext there? She killed um... all her husbands. <laughs> so how did you get, uh, end up working at the RSC then? What was, was that something you deliberately zeroed in on as a student and thought this will, this is the place for me? Is oh, it... I wish, I wish I'd had that much control over my career. I mean, I, I, I love to meet the person just leaving drama school who who had that much kind of control and and, <laughs> and focus and who knew that that's what they wanted. No, I mean I literally left drama school thinking this will never work out. I just managed to get an agent having had no interest in the final year at all all year and then a friend wrote a little speech for me and then I had some interest from agents. Uh, but I had it had left me feeling very unconfident about my abilities and my ability to get work. Oh, really? Well, I mean, if I'm honest, I found drama school hard for many reasons. I found my castings were very odd, you know, 
they weren't going to, they weren't doing me any favors and they were quite frankly annoying some of them you know so you'd have your final year shows to the public where they could finally come and see it and where casting agents and agents would come and you you could get work and have representation i was getting cast as you know the pakistani janitor i'm not pakistani uh oh. the 90 year old jewish new yorker which God knows it was an interesting role, but, but yeah. you know, it's not close to my age. Anyway. No. And, and you kind of go, this is, this is so wrong on so many levels. It's not quite working how I saw it. And you'd see various people going off and getting their agents and things. And I'd be very happy for them. But it just left me feeling like, whoa, where's my place in all this? I don't right. think this is going to work out. So, so when I did get an agent, I went into the world with a sense of trepidation but my first job was at a rep theater in farnham at the red grave mm-hmm. um doing a christmas show and and a very obscure moliere and in it was steve mangan and my friend nick cavalieri uh and that was my first job and my second job was an audition that came from a casting director who was casting at the rsc called siobhan brack who said let's get you in at the rsc and get you in for a season, see how it works. It's kind of players cast, tiny roles, four lines in this play, ten lines in that play, no lines in that play, of three plays. And so I went in and I got offered the role. And who should be there when I when I actually started the RSC, having been offered the roles, but my old friend Nick Cavalieri from the previous hey. job. So it was lovely. Uh, so, so it was just by chance. It was just by chance. Oh, really? I was right place at the right time. And I auditioned for Peter Hall, Michael Bogdanoff and Matthew Warchus. It was, and it was a wonderful experience, both my life at that point, a life experience and a learning experience. Oh, brilliant. Uh, so I guess obviously you knew the, the history, the heritage of the RSC. And oh, gosh, you, was yeah. It, was it a daunting experience when you first started? Or were you, well, were you still... I, I wanted, it was, it, was, it was the place or one of the places you just wanted to work as an actor yeah. because so many of my heroes acting heroes had worked there and had gone through the doors of the RSC. Uh, And so to audition for it was unbelievably nerve wracking. And, you know, it was the old fashioned long table of directors and assistant. I mean, and three directors in the room at once, Peter Hall and, you know, and their assistants. It was, I mean, you really, you had to sort of take a deep breath and just do it. And it was terrifying, but it was a vital lesson for me and a lesson in self-belief as well but yes I was over the moon but then I remember going into rehearsals for the first of those plays um which was The Devil is an Ass of Ben Johnson that that Matthew Warchus was directing and, and just being so nervous every day as I went into rehearsals and not believing that I deserved to be there or or understanding how I'd managed to land uh, part these parts in the RSC and be amongst these actors who I could barely make eye contact with because I admired them so much or was feeling like they were so amazing. I mean, I remember was John Nettles and, and people like that and, and, and they were so kind and lovely. But I had to take changes of T-shirts with me, Greg, uh, <laughs> each day, two, two changes of T-shirts because I was sweating so profusely under my armpits, even just sitting around the table, rehearsing, looking through the text and not even getting up and moving. <laughs> Well, this was just nerves, was it? This was, it was sort just of just nerves. The I just adrenaline thought, uh, yeah, the adrenaline of how on earth have, they, have I ended up here? You know, it's amazing. So 
I, I guess you might be considered one of one of those actors. You know, you're an associate <laughs> artist at the RST. <laughs> I don't so feel it. When, I can tell you that. <laughs> so I mean, has a has that changed? And b do you now turn up in rehearsals with extra t-shirts for young actors <laughs> who <laughs> who might? Need a little, you know, lunchtime help. No, Greg, because uh, that'd be very weird and probably <laughs> illegal. Um, I am, um, I am, um, I, well, I, I, to be honest, I am so impressed with the confidence of young actors. And I think it's a good confidence. It's not an arrogance. It's a confidence, uh, of the young actors I work with. And I, I wish I'd had that when I was that age, but you know, here I am and it's fine. Everyone, and this is another lesson is everyone has their own route through through this this industry and this this work we do in our world and there's no set route there's just no set route and you can feel all sorts of things as you start and and mm. you know you talk to any actor i i guarantee it no one i know from a young actor to judy dench goes yeah yeah i'm pretty confident i'm going to be working solidly you know yeah i'm sure that you know i'm sure it's going to be fine they're all petrified you know that they'll never work again and are constantly doubting themselves and i still do that and i think part of it's healthy you just got not got to let it tip into something negative and unproductive i mean one of the joys of theater and particularly the joys of a company like the rsc with an ensemble that you get to know so intimately for a year or longer is that you will be able to watch and learn from brilliant actors of all ages and enjoy and respect their work. And age is irrelevant suddenly. It's like a perfect society when it works because you've got people who are literally 19 or 20 and you've got people in their 80s, you know, yeah. working together and respecting each other and celebrating each other's work. And it's a, oh, my goodness, it's a privilege but going back to your RSC question, it, it's just one of the great ensemble theatre companies of the world. And you 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 get that chance to go deep with something because you get a decent amount of time to rehearse and you really get to know your fellow actors. Brilliant. Yeah, there's something very appealing I find with no matter how old people are. Yeah. There's something about the theatre that still gives them a zest for newness. So, you know, you'll meet somebody who is 82, but they still mess around like a teenager a little bit. Well, um, in, that, you know. in, in that first company, I'll give you an example. I could give you hundreds of examples. But in that first company, there were actors who were just 21 who'd left drama mm. school. Um, and then there was Peter Copley, who had been a Marine in the D-Day landings. Wow. And he was like a child in rehearsals in that he had an openness mm. and an uh, inquiring mind and a curiosity about about the texts, the plays, and and what other people had to offer, and right. I just looked at that and I went, God, I want to be like that. I want to be like that. I want to stay open. I want to learn from other actors. I want to learn from the directors, and I want to challenge myself. And you weren't rushed. You felt like you had time to go deep with everything, with the plays, with your relationships with actors, with everything. So I have this little theory I've thought that theatre is actually a, just about the most pinpoint precision-engineered medium for discussing the issues that we have uh, that happen in the world at the moment. This is one of the few places, I think, where people who don't agree with each other will sit for a couple of hours and go through a topic. Mm. Uh, and I was wondering if you thought that Shakespeare was a bit like that itself, 
supposed to cover the biggest scope of different experiences. And I wonder if you knew or thought about any particular play that might speak to our times at the moment. We're facing multiple crises, aren't we, in the world? You know, whether it's climate crisis or a pandemic or um, populist politics uh, movements that are, you know, are feeding on hatred and bigotry. Um, and we have a huge debate in our own country about, you know, our past and our colonial past and, and also our relationship with race, with socioeconomic backgrounds, with disability and not people with, without disabilities, all these things. And I think Shakespeare's got it all. I, I think it will, it will, the times will suit different plays, perhaps, but there'll always be something in every single play. But I mean, at the moment, I, I am feeling like Hamlet is the play that's speaking to me. I think about it a lot, um, just because it's about action versus inaction. It's about outrageous fortune, which means, you know, I'm thinking of the to be or not to be speech, but you know, it, it is all encapsulated in there in terms of, outrageous fortune and in which is another word for injustice mm. you know what do we do about it do we just take it or do we fight and resist and i think we are reaching a point as a world as a species where we have got to start taking some action and we yeah. can't go on like we were so i i would say hamlet and and i think you could apply say that speech to anything i mean i looked at the i looked at the killing of george floyd and all the black lives matter protests across the world and and you know the killing of black people particularly in america and i thought well how, how much longer does that injustice have to go on before people do something and mm. yet you know it's continuing and we have a lot more work to do. But I think so, if we're going to go back to a play, I think something like Hamlet will will just have it all. So um, if you don't mind me talking about the race issue a tiny bit, Give you because you're mixed. You call, would you call yourself mixed race? Is that what you call yourself? I don't. Know. I don't know. I don't have a box that that really applies to me. I mean, I I sometimes describe myself as British Iranian. I'm half Iranian and half British. And so my dad was Iranian, and I was born in Iran. I came here when I was one. I grew up speaking Farsi, which is the language of Iran, and as well as English. But I've lived here all my life, and I can't envisage myself living anywhere else, and and not Iran much as I'd love to go back and visit it. But I, I, I suppose I'd say I'm of Iranian heritage or British Iranian, I guess. We're all playing with, with, with ways to describe oh, things, no, aren't we? And it, it, different people have a different take on it. But yes, that's how I'd probably go. Yeah, British Iranian or of Iranian heritage. I remember bumping into you once and you were trying to explain that some people know you by one name and... Yes. Other people know you by another name. Yeah. I just remember you said it so engagingly and it was sort of funny, but it, it really sort of stayed with me, really. Uh, and you said you called yourself professionally Paul. And the way you said it is, oh, I call myself Paul because of, um, well, because of racism, really. And that's how you said it. And you sort of laughed as you said it. And I thought, oh, that's interesting because I haven't chosen my name on those lines. So, you know, I'm a white yeah. guy, so it's just not something that occurs to me. Well, it's interesting because you can encounter uh, prejudice in lots of different ways and, you know, it, 
I think the most obvious one is if your skin is a different colour, but it can be, if you have a disability, it can be from what, you know, socioeconomic background you're from, whatever. But, but um, I, when I was, I have a long Iranian name. It's a very Muslim Iranian name. I'm very proud of it. And so my, my actual name is Giv and, and my surname is twice as long as Shahidi. Shahidi is the second half of it. Um, but when I was leaving drama school and I was finally being seen by these agents, all of them, including the one I really respected and who was a very respected agent and very respectful, said a variation on the same theme. And they said, look, it's racist and it's wrong. This was in 1994. So it's racist and it's wrong. But we have Asian clients, some of whom have anglicized their names and some who haven't. And the ones who have go up for more work. So at that point, as I think I mentioned, I was despairing of ever working as an actor anyway. I really was at a low ebb as I left drama school, feeling like this was not going to work out. You know, what was I going to get cast in? My casting at drama school had been very odd and I felt overlooked. Um, But I thought, well... I have a Catholic middle name. My mum's English and she was a Catholic. My dad was Muslim, although very lapsed. And I had a Catholic middle name that didn't appear anywhere, a baptismal name, called, which was Paul. And I thought, I'll take that. I'll truncate my second name to the second half of my Iranian name and I'll make it Paul Chahidi, which on paper actually weirdly reflects the half and half nature. However, I tussled with it because I thought, am I betraying my culture and my heritage by doing that? But I, to be honest, at that point thought, I don't think it's going to work out. And if this means one less hoop to jump through, and given the people who've told me it could, it could make a difference, and I trusted them, I thought, I'll give it a go. Um, and as I said to you, the irony is, it took me 10 years to start answering to the name Paul. They'd have to repeat it four times before I turned <laughs> round and responded to it, because yeah. in my head I was still geeve. Um, and then after 10 years, just as I got my head around being called Paul, everyone started calling me Geeve because they got to know me. <laughs> um, but I'm, 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 in some ways, I wish I hadn't and hadn't felt that pressure. And I present as, I'd say, broadly speaking, as white, but I, ha- I am from a Muslim, uh, half Muslim yeah. background and Iranian background. So, you know, it's, um, I would hope that young actors now, are not feeling a pressure to do that anymore. And I'm feeling like I see more uh, names from other cultures as they were in their original form, which is very heartening to me. Uh, and I, I can live with my decision. It was a decision I made at the time for, you know, reasons that I felt were valid. Um, but, you know, looking back on it, I go, well, I wish I, I wish I hadn't felt I needed to do that. Um, I once saw a very angry letter in a newspaper complaining about Chiwetel Ejiofor's name because it should be spelt as it's, you know, it's too difficult because it should be spelt as it's said. And I, I sort of looked at this and it says Chiwetel Ejiofor. I know, how hard Of course, the guy, the guy who'd written the letter was called Vaughan or something with a silent G or something. But he couldn't, I don't suppose he had access to hearing that. So yeah. that, that, I think that's an issue that people miss with the diversity thing. It's like open. It's what I love about theatre is that it's an open community where you're always questioning, you're always curious about these conversations, and it feels often like a, a safe and yet exciting place to explore things like identity and, and what that means. Yeah, without people getting too high on a horse, because you get some there's compassion in theatre, and there's yeah. and also storytelling is such a good medium for exploring what things mean. It is, and I think theatre 
has a lot of work to do still, all theatre companies with diversity and inclusion. But I think it's working towards it. And I would say theatre is often, compared to other media, leading the way uh, in certain areas with that. Um, and I feel like, but I feel like, you know, obviously there is a lot more work to, to be done, but, but theatre can really bring people together uh, if, if, if it's done right. Did you ever see yourself playing a vicar uh, when you were a kid? Or was that something? Oh, my goodness. In no way. You know, if you ask me what, what role, I'd never, never seen myself playing a vicar. Um, mind you, there are many roles I'd never see. <laughs> I would never have seen myself <laughs> playing. Um, but, you know, I, I, it, who knew that a vicar could be such a joyous role to, to play and be given and would, it, it, it was one of those turning points in my career. There have been a few, but, you know, it was definitely one of them playing oh, playing Francis Seaton. It, <laughs> it is sort of the endless patience as uh, the opposite of a fatal flaw is yeah. tr- tremendous to watch. Yeah, uh, and I love the fact that I am this half Iranian man playing this quintessentially English <laughs> English vicar. So it's it's brilliant. I got so in there. You... <laughs> <laughs> so just as a technical question, you know, you do you do Shakespeare comedy and then you do modern comedy like that, which is more of a sort of mockumentary style. Yeah. Uh, and you do, you know, more serious stuff and more light affair. Mm. Do, do you have to kind of switch a switch on your head to, to say, oh, I'm doing something different now? Like, you know, Mariah in Twelve Night was one of your great successes. Fantastic. Mm. But are you aware of that when you're acting? Just as a, maybe a drama student might be listening to this and want some advice. So I'd say the only, I'd say the, the big difference... Um, between stage and screen is just scale um so you need to bring it right down for the camera but even within camera work there is a difference between ultra naturalistic like this country or if you were in something like um i don't know people just do nothing or those those kind of programs where it's like Mm. it's a fly on the wall documentary thing like the office um and more acted dramas or comedies like sitcoms and things um so you you just get to know it as you go along and when i was at drama school there was very little camera training and i i think there is much more now which is a brilliant thing because it was absolutely terrifying to begin with and you relied on the kindness of relative strangers on set to show you what to do um so you know you you cannot mumble and speak very softly on stage because you know what's the point of that if people can't hear you and you learn that truth comes in all sizes. So truth can be very small and truth can be larger, but it needs to be rooted in reality. And, and that comes from, you know, looking at the what's driving the characters uh, and what, what their struggles are and what's making them say and do the things they do. Yes, I think I, lo- I alluded to in the introduction about... I don't know if you remember the moment, you must do, it, when you played Bulgan in... in- you did a brilliant flounce which which i thought i mean it was delightful but you know from a technical view of an actor sitting in the audience oh yeah he's really gone for that um which sort of goes slightly maybe against that i mean it was still naturalistic yeah. it was still believable in that character it was just a big thing in fact the, the, <laughs> the cinema that i was in is a local cinema to where we both live. We live near each other. And it, and it got a little round of applause. Did it? For, yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> and I foolishly went over to these guys afterwards and said, oh, you're, you live around here, you must know 
Porsche heating? And they said, <laughs> no. They said, no. So uh, genuinely, <laughs> it was me doubting what they were. <laughs> I'm no. trying to flatter you, but I'm probably insulting you at the same no, time. No, bless you. Said, well, no, that's the thing. I don't get recognised, which is, is fine by me. And and um, well, the, the, the thing you're referring to is I kind of did a, a balletic full circle turn while exiting a room as part of the Politburo and dressed in a general's uniform in, in set in Russia in 1950s Russia. And when I did it, because a lot of the stuff was improvised, uh, but not a lot of it ended up on screen, um, we would just stick to the script and we'd always have a bit of improvisation. And Armando Yanucci would say, if you want to have a go at things, have a go now on this take and loosen it up without going completely off piece. And I did that. And as soon as he called cut, I was absolutely convinced I was either going to get fired or get a dressing down for just doing something really stupid. And, you know, look, you're working with Michael Palin and Steve Buscemi, the best here. You cannot do this nonsense on my set. But actually, he went, yeah, really like that. Do it again. It's just joyous. But you, you, kind of have to, you, you kind of have to use your judgment and it requires self-confidence. Again, you know, if you're too timid... You would never try that. And it's taken me years to have the self-confidence to go, deep breath here. I was told I can try stuff out, so I have every right to try it out. And it's almost that thing of going, I I have a place at the table and I deserve that place at the table because someone saw something in me. So, you know, if I was, if there were any younger students of drama or, or actors starting out, I'd go, it is, it is believing in yourself to have that self-confidence without it tipping over into arrogance that's all um yeah being being alive to the room did you have to change yeah. your t-shirt afterwards oh, well yeah <laughs> i mean i was quite nervous yeah. when we started that job because it was working with my heroes but but no it was I, I i think by then you learn that you cannot be weird and sort of all fanboy with other actors you have no. to just relate to them as See as them other as actors as. and get on with the work So are, are there any, if this isn't too, too contrived a question, are there any parallels between doing that and Shakespeare comedy, would you say? Something like This Country or the other screen work you've done? Well, as I say, I mean, there is a, there is a technical difference in all of them. You learn, you learn about that as you go on. You learn how to scale it up or scale it down. And there are, there are demands that are required on stage that are just not needed on camera because the camera will find you, the microphone will pick you up. It's almost mm. like you you're beckoning the camera in and it's they're having to um, do the work to to come into your world. You're not projecting very much at all. Um, so once that that aside, I approach many roles in whatever medium in the same with a few s- similar principles, which is, you know, find the truth of the character. Yes, if it's a comedy, clearly it's written to be funny, but don't chase the laughs. Find out what the pain is and the suffering, the vulnerability of that character that makes them say these things that to the outside world seem funny, but they're not funny to that character. That yeah. character is living his or her best life or worst life at that point, and, and, but meaning it. And it just so happens the situation is ridiculous to someone watching it. And I'd say, broadly speaking, I, if something's a, an inverted commas comic role or a, a comedy, I'd look for the darkness in it always and the vulnerability and pain that underpins the character you're playing and and actually in a tragedy not that i do that many tragedies but when i have done it's finding the likeness in it 
Yeah. Because there are moments, especially, and this is again why Shakespeare is so brilliant. You, you know, it's not a wash of sadness, his tragedies. And his comedies aren't just belly laughs all the way through. There's darkness in the comedies and there is bitter humour in the tragedies. And it's your job as an actor to mine those moments and mine those aspects of a character. And broadly speaking, find the vulnerability in your characters and explore them because they will give you the clues and they will root your actions, whatever they are, whether it's a comedy or a tragedy in something real. Mm. Even a, not a massive role, like Mariah in Twelfth Night, you know, it was a turning point for me playing that role. It got me noticed. And, and I didn't have that many lines. It's a nice role, but it's not one of those roles that everyone comes out of the play going, oh, I wish I could get play the part of Mariah, you know, who's the, the lady-in-waiting to Olivia. It, but even in her speeches that seemed like just um, expositional, telling you the plot about the letter they're going to use to gull Malvolio and, and trick everyone. It has to come from somewhere. And there is just one line, one moment where Malvolio breaks up the party uh, and Mariah has spent the whole previous bit of the scene trying to shush everyone and get them to go to bed uh, and kind of just keep the peace. And then Malvolio comes in, breaks it up and blames it on Mariah and that is her turning point. And I thought, there's not much written there in response. In fact, I didn't think there was even a line, but, but there was a gap. And in that gap, that was the point at which that drives everything that she does for revenge on Malvolio. And, and, and I felt a huge welling of emotion and anger, which is then suppressed by the character and put into this fiendishly funny and cruel plot uh, that she she hatches against Malvolio, and again with Francis Seaton, you know he it's there in the writing, but you know his son is a drug addict, and mm. you know he's struggling to 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 cope with that and to look after his son, and and he's kind of transferred his his efforts of fathering for much of. The, the world and his life that you see him in onto Kerry and Curtin in, in this country. Um, and, you know, when I play clowns in Shakespeare, like Touchstone, um, I've, I've thought, well, it's a kind of gag merchant if you look at it one way and it's, it's a complicated language, but even with those characters, you've got to find moments where they're not many, but they're where they're vulnerable. So you've all got some sense of, why it is they're covering it up with all the humour. Why hmm. are they doing that? To humanise them. And it's not to say you then take ages kind of emoting, but you've got to, even if you hide most of that, you've got to have it rooted for yourself in something. And then I feel like you're away. You know, you can, you can do anything you like with it. Um, and likewise, the, the performances I find thrilling in tragedies in other actors, you know, I watch whoever... There you nearly always some element of wit and humour in unexpected moments. And I go, oh, God, that is brilliant. And that's so human. We, mm. in our bleakest moments, find humour um, in order to not sink into oblivion. That's brilliant. I think that's absolutely right. The, the humanity of it is what we find delightful and relatable. And that's where the compassion and the empathy lies. Yeah. And I think, you know... Not only is that true, but also I think technically it's really useful. Otherwise, uh, uh, sometimes it gets too earnest if people are just sort of yeah, absolutely. being one note all the time. 
And Shakespeare doesn't write like that. He writes, if you look at any speech, he it turn on a sixpence. He'll go from seemingly bleak and tragic to very funny and then back again and, then, and back the other way and then back again. And the same with the comic speeches. And it's finding those quick changes that are the challenge. I mean, it's hard, but it, it pays such rewards when you're doing it or when you're watching it. Um, and I, sorry, I just remembered, I think you were asking me about early experiences of theatre way at the beginning of our chat. And I just remembered oh, yeah. one of the productions that stayed with me and inspired me and made me want to think about acting, even though I didn't know I wanted to be an actor as a, prof a professional actor, it, it made me want to be in plays and, and feel so excited by the theatre. And Shakespeare was the production of Henry V at the Royal Shakespeare Theatre in Stratford with Kenneth Branagh. Brian Blessed, a whole raft of brilliant actors. Uh, and, and it was there. And my parents had splashed out on some stall seats. And that was the other thing, <laughs> was that I was close enough to the stage to see it happening and to see their facial expressions close up rather than being at the, the back of the gods. And I think that's the other thing for young people. We need to get them to be able to afford theatre tickets and to be able to sit in good seats near the front where they can really get involved and make it make it accessible. That's brilliant. Yeah, I have one of those as well, actually. And it was uh, what seen was yours? Terry uh, Terry Hans directed Romeo and Juliet. It was it was Mark Rylance playing Romeo, oh, Georgia yes. Slow, I think, playing Juliet. And um, it was on tour, and they took a thrust stage up to Yorkshire, where I grew up. And I went to see this production, not thinking I'd expect too much from it. And honestly. Yeah, I forgot it's sort of a comedy to start with, Romeo and Juliet, yeah. and then suddenly yeah. there's the famous sort of fight scene and then everything takes. And it's a it's great plot-driven play. And I, I wanted to be an actor, and it was one of those ones that was really daunting as well as exciting because I thought, oh, I can't be as good as this, but also um, it's yeah. everything that I wanted to do. And there yeah. was a couple of... It was the closeness of it and the intimacy of it and the yes. truth of it. Yes, But absolutely. also there was a bit when the... the Spoiler alert, some of the characters die and because they'd been in a big sword fight, they were lying on the ground and I could see they were still breathing quite heavily. And it just didn't matter. And on screen, that would have been a really important choice not to see them breathe. But there's yeah. something about the, the sort of the, the cauldron of the theatrical space. You just kind of go, oh, right, yeah, we're all on board with this. We know they're pretending, but it's still the story's fantastic. Yeah. I just remember it, it was such an important experience for me. Yeah, absolutely. So, Paul, is there a particular role you want to play or a play that you want to be in? Is there a form that you haven't worked in so far? I mean, you know, podcasting's only been going a while. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I think I've got a future as a TikTok dancer because my son is is watching <laughs> not on on YouTube. I hasten to add because he's nine. We won't let him watch TikTok. He's too young for that. But he is. Well, I'm just going to dive in there because I did see you do the Soldier Boy dance once. Yeah, which was when you played. <laughs> Where, that was a scene. Which they've now done on Inside Number Nine. I don't know if you've seen that. They, no. they don't do it quite as well. Oh, well, do. how could they? How could they, Greg? I mean, people are still talking about my soldier boy dance. But um, yes, I know. I mean, I, I, I'd love to be a great dancer. I wish I could. You are but, a great uh, dancer, Paul. In my own Honestly, head, Greg. And that's all that Change matters. your T-shirt, man, and <laughs> convince yourself you are a good dancer. Oh, but no, I, don't, I mean, I, I never entered the profession going, oh, I really want to play that role or that role. If you, like I said, if you told me, playing a parish vicar in a Cotswold village would be one of my favourite roles ever and would mm. would lead to so much joy for me in my career. I never believed you. would be like, well, that can't be a good role, can it? Um, but, um, I Is mean, that, I, oh, 
Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it, it's, but it becomes so good, doesn't it? It becomes so good. Yeah, and who knows? I mean, so much of what you now call my, a career with me or you or anyone is just a series of yeses and noes to jobs that you 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 were lucky enough to get offered it, and you either say yes or no, and then you know it leads to another door opening and th- that way. But I mean, I I'd love to give Richard the Third a go. I'd love to. I'd love to do some stonking great comedies, but I don't have a specific role in mind that I, I would want to play because I think I, I, I would like some more substantial roles as I go along. Cause I could, I'd get bored otherwise potentially, but, but I've been constantly surprised by, by what I've been able to find in, in seemingly unfruitful roles. Sometimes um, it, it's as much about the collaborators, you know, your fellow actors and the director you're working with. And of course, the heroes of who are the writers. Um, I, I, I mean, in other media, I, I'm very lucky. I do radio, television, film and theatre. I've, I've often thought I might try writing again. I, a long time ago, I used to write a bit of comedy um, with friends um, or presenting. I quite like the idea of presenting something, right. you know, just wandering around. I just love those people who can wander <laughs> around the countryside and then turn to camera and say what something would you do? seemingly what would you do, the wise. The Chelsea Flower Show, or are you going to do? Yes, a maybe home, a history of the Church of England. That's probably my most <laughs> likely next gig. You know, absolutely fantastic. <laughs> oh, I can't. I cannot wait for that. Um, part of the remit of this uh, podcast was to ask slightly more provocative questions. and uh, So I'm going to ask you one now. Mm. I'm going to frame it slightly as if it's not my voice, because it's something that I heard a relatively well-known stand-up comedian say once, and he proposed that Shakespeare comedy was not actually genuinely funny. It only works when you have clever directors and brilliant production teams working with naturally funny actors that hide the fact they're not that funny. So I wondered what you thought of that I think you have to differentiate between the different types of comedy that that crop up in Shakespeare. And I would say you will always want funny actors in anything to make it work as a comedy, whether it's contemporary writing or Shakespeare. That's just a given. Uh, I don't agree that all Shakespeare is unfunny. I don't agree with that. However, there are some characters and some types of comedy that need help. Um, you have to start, I think, with the the text and take it from there and then extrapolate from that, maybe, but within reason and not just make it a laugh-chasing exercise because there is always a character to play. Mm. And if you're not going to be funny, be truthful. I mean, I, be, I think be truthful first. And if it happens to be funny, great. Um so what I'm talking about is the difference between a funny scene between two or three people talking where there is banter and dialogue. And actually, it's a scene in Shakespeare that kind of almost reminds you of a sitcom now. Those scenes work pretty easily. All everyone has to do is find the truth in the situation and the characters, understand every bit of language that's coming out of their mouths and then say it like they mean it. And if they're naturally gifted comedically then it it will work it doesn't need that much work in that sense the tricky ones are things like the clowns Mm. so i played touchstone i think it's one of the hardest roles in shakespeare because hamlet gets hundreds of you know speeches and everything i mean he's got different challenges but you know touchstone is is 
is basically the half-remembered shtick of Robert Armin, who was the stand-up comedian, star comic actor of Shakespeare's day. And it looks like stand a stand-up routine from Elizabethan England, from the Globe, that someone, one of Condals or Hemming, wrote down the contemporaries of Shakespeare who were writing the folios, wrote down, but he was speaking so fast they could roughly remember it and he was improvising every night anyway so you get a gist of what the actor did but it's oh my goodness it's so hard to make sense of it and yet once you unpick it you can make sense of it you do need to sometimes find your own routine and stick around it you have to kind of find the truth if you can it's very surface a lot of it but also that might be the type of comedy where you find your kind of little jokes to insert with these lines that no one will ever completely understand. And yet there is a rhythm to the language that helps you, even in prose, you know, with comedy. Um, Yeah, I understand that. um... But I don't agree that it's not funny, all of Shakespeare. Some of it is hard, though. Some of it is, is... at first sight, not funny, though, I would agree. Some of it. Yeah, I did Costard the Fool for Peter Hall, <gasps> which was a great yeah. job. Um, yeah. Love's Lib is Lost, but yeah, he's he's impenetrable to start with. But then, you know, you're right. I really relate to what you're saying about the character choices. It reminds me of that wonderful note. You might have heard this before that an actor saying to the director, I used to get a laugh on the line when I asked for the butter, and I don't get a laugh on that line anymore. And the director says to him, it's because you've started to ask for the laugh and not ask for the butter. Yes, exactly. Which I just think is brilliant, and it's a really, really useful thing as a technical thing. You, start, you play the truth of the character. Yeah, and play the, the action. Will come out. Play the yeah, truth. exactly, which is fantastic. And the humour will come out. And the other missing ingredient is the other actors you're going to be working opposite, because the stuff that is exciting to do and to watch is not the stuff you come up with on your own in your armchair at home while trying to come up with clever, funny ideas. It's the stuff that is unexpected that comes from bouncing off other actors on stage with a director helping you. Those are the things that, that will make it funny. And in a way it kind of takes the pressure off you. You you can just go, I'm just going to know my lines inside out, know what I'm saying and come with as much integrity as I say them as I can and see where we end up at the end of today's rehearsal. And I can guarantee, you know, that something useful will come up and then it ends up on stage. Yeah, it's brilliant. I love watching actors enjoy themselves on stage, provided the audience are included in that. Sometimes yeah. you see them enjoy. Sometimes you see them enjoy themselves too much, and the audience may as well be three quarters of a mile away. But that's actually something I miss a lot. Lockdown at the moment is yeah. my favourite experience. I think altogether is being in a room, that shared experience of being oh, in a room full too. of people enjoying themselves. Me it's too, just a, Greg. I miss it so much. I haven't done a play for three years, and I, I miss that. That live, unpredictable, shared experience. It's so powerful. Yeah. Um, so powerful, both as an audience member and as an actor. So we're obviously both fans of the theatre, Paul. You know, we enjoy it. But I also enjoy it, not just for the showing off purposes. I feel like it does make a difference to the world, which is what we've experienced very viscerally uh, in that mentoring project, Seen and Heard, that we talked about. You can see how it seems to improve people's lives so given that that theatre is a very useful thing where where do you think it should go next in the next 5, 10, 15 years how how do you see that developing? Well I want to see 
more people from non-white backgrounds on stage in leading roles. I want to see more people from diverse backgrounds, whether it's uh, we're talking about um, ethnicities or people with disabilities or people from um, poorer backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds. I want to see more of them both on stage and directing and working backstage um, and producing. Uh, I also think we have to look at getting young people in, making it accessible and cheap and affordable for them to come and see plays and um, to get them while they're young and to see themselves on stage in some way. So, you know, if you can't see it, you can't be it. People, I've heard it thousands of times from fellow actors who are from diverse backgrounds saying, I saw as a child so-and-so and they looked just like me and it was the first time I'd seen someone like that on stage and that gave me the confidence to believe I could do it. And it's the same in any walk of life, but in theatre, it is just a huge thing if you see someone who looks like you or is from your background or some similar background up there on stage, um, it, it can make all the difference, I think, to your aspirations for yourself and your ambitions and your your dreams. Even if you don't want to be an actor, your story is worth listening to and that you are being represented in society Um I just think it's absolutely crucial to to who we are. Oh, it's the end of the interval. I can hear oh, the bell ringing. Yes. And neither of us have even been to the loo. What I are we going to do? Enjoy the second my drink. We've been talking so much. I hope you enjoyed the slice of lime. Loved it. So just one final question is, if you could have an interval drink with anybody ever, live, dead... You'd probably choose alive, wouldn't you? Um, <laughs> you don't want to have a drink with a cadaver. Um, <laughs> no, not really. Yeah. Um, who, who would you? Who would you choose? Well, you know, uh, I've missed getting together with friends so much as we all have uh, with all the restrictions on our lives with the pandemic. But you know, I, I would probably settle for anyone right now. But I, I miss my, I miss, I miss some of my actor chums, and. Um, I'd love to get together with um, any of my actor chums, but I was thinking actually we used to have a little informal supper and lunch club with Michael Palin and and um, uh, Paul Whitehouse. We've been doing on and off for the last four years, uh, and it's extraordinary. I know I didn't, couldn't quite see why they wanted to meet up with me, but I was very gratefully accepting their invitations. And we just get together, and I just basically ply them with wine and just listen to their stories. So they would definitely be up there. Also, I I owe my friend Nicholas Rowe, who you know, Nick Rowe, yes, I the know actor. Nick, yeah. I I owe him a uh, a drink or two. So I'd be wanting to see him, and he's been bothering me with phone calls and texts, asking. You know, oh, he's, he's such a botherer that man. So needy. Um, but yes, I mean, quite frankly, any any company in person is just going to be a joyous thing, isn't it? Paul, it's been an absolute delight. Thank you for enjoying a drink with me here today. I've Good loved luck with it. all you do. Thank you. Thank you. Next 
next week on Interval Drinks will be a little bit different. We hope you'll join us for a very special vodcast with the actors B. Webster and Charlotte Arrowsmith. Remember, you can catch your favourite episodes again on the Royal Shakespeare Company website. Interval Drinks is sponsored by Darwin Escapes.